What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Early Read Week 7 Review, Week 8 Preview. Gosh, already Week 8. We have a lot happened last week. got a lot more that's going to happen this week. And to break it all down, I'm joined by Clark Brooks at SEC underscore StatCat, a college football analyst on On3Sports.com. He's the founder and operator of, of SEC StatCat. Make sure you check out all his work. Does a ton of great advanced metrics work in the college football space. Clark, thanks for coming on, man. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this should be a lot of fun. I know you have some SEC roots, and it's not the biggest SEC slate, but we have a lot to talk about as it relates to Alabama potentially getting into the mix where it comes to college football playoff conversation. Georgia, uh, we're recording this on Monday night. Georgia, Monday afternoon, announced Brock Bowers going to undergo an ankle surgery. Maybe we'll bring that up. surgery. Ooh, that's not we, a good sign. I mean, at halftime, Kirby's like, oh, it's just a low ankle sprain. No big deal. Oh, it's not. It's, not a, it's a pretty big deal now. It's a pretty big we, deal. We will get into all that. And then, of course, obviously, Clark, I said you're an SEC guy. I'm a Big Ten guy. We got to talk about Penn State, Ohio State. We're going to hit on some Florida State, Duke, some Clemson, Miami. We got a lot to get to. And I'm pumped to get into it. But let's start reviewing what was last week, a pretty chaotic week in college football. We're going to start with some my guy, not my guy. So for new listeners, for Clark, this is my way, our way of basically shouting out one player or team that, you know, maybe cashed a bet for us last week. Wanted to, you want to give some praise to. And then another guy we want to let know, you, you kind of screwed us over. You kind of let us down. Uh, and, you know, there's always – Every guest I have on, it turns out that the not my guy segment is a lot more fun and we can really, you know, le- lean into some people. But it's and then, usually because of uh, blown bets, I can imagine, because I oh, mine came to mind instantly because <laughs> the first blown bet of last week. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so we'll start my, we'll start, we always like to start happy though. My guy, I got, I mean, this is an easy one in my opinion. I'm going to probably butcher his name, but Alec Altamainer for Stanford. Okay. I don't know if you stayed up for this game though, Clark, but I was about to, yeah. Uh, no, I went to I bed bet. at 21, uh, 29, nothing. Um, uh, and no, uh, I woke up to bad news as I'll, I'll share my, uh, my, Oh, so great. So we're, we're, this week. Yeah. As someone who bet on Stanford, I thought it was done 20, 28, nine, nothing, 29, nothing at halftime. I was convinced it was over in bed. You know, we got a long day ahead of us on Saturday. It's time to go, you know, I'm watching, you know, TV, whatever. And I, you know, halftime goes and, I just flip over. I'm like, okay, half second half's about to start. I'll watch the first drive. I'll see what happens. Just like to see if anything, you know, turns up. Maybe Stanford. I was like, if Stanford scores, I'll keep watching. If Colorado comes back and scores, I'll turn it off. That was my inner ruling. I I never rule out bets. This was like one of the first times I've ever really was like, this one's dead on arrival. And then magic happens. And Altamire, 13 catches, 294 yards, had a 97-yard touchdown, had like a 60-yard touchdown. Overtime, he absolutely sunned Travis Hunter uh, in the first overtime. Absolutely out of body experience. I just, I, I don't know what to say. I, I really thought it was one of the, the crazier outcomes I've ever seen on the heels of obviously last week's Arizona USC game. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's Pac-12 after dark. I mean, that that is a thing. And hopefully that bleeds over to your territory next season with some of these new entrants. But yeah, I mean, Coach Prime, this season, sure, they had some wonky expectations depending on who you ask. But still, Mm -hmm. we have a pretty good sample size. They are not a good second half team. That defense seems to crumble. They don't really make good adjustments. So props to Stanford's new coaching staff to find wins there. So I have a little bit of a gripe because, yeah, Travis Hunter, 
he had missed last month. Probably going back to his old usage was not great. And of course, as we saw, he allowed over like 100 yards and two touchdowns or whatever, even if mm-hmm. he did produce 100 on the other end himself. So yes, he is still a very, very special player. But I just don't think some of the player management expertise is quite there for Coach Prime. Um, I had a seven-leg money line, starting with the buffs. Well, the, the rest six hit. And uh, unfortunately, you know, like I said, since I was a Friday night game, it just really started my betting week off on a bad foot. Yeah, you never like to lose the first one. You never – it no. always sets – it always feels – you never like to play from behind. Even though, like, it has – it's completely irrelevant. All the – all the results have nothing to do with one another. They're not exclusive, but it's a good for like the mental psyche, especially on a weeknight game. Like, all right, let's get let's get off to a good start this week. You know, build some momentum into Saturday. Get the vibes high. I mean, what a game that was! And I, I felt like it was Deion Sanders. Like he's really getting. He's coached college football before, but this is like his first big time job. He's getting like all like a five year coaching odyssey in like half a season, where like has the big upset win against TCU. Then he gets his doors blown out by a better team where like he's maybe a frisky underdog and everyone's excited. No, no, no. Humbling expectations. And then he has like one of the biggest meltdowns in college football history. It's all happening at once. It usually takes coaches like several years to really get into all these different emotions. He's getting it all at hyperspeed. Yeah. And you got to hope because he is, I wouldn't say learning uh, as we're going because you said we he did have experience at Jackson State, but of course this is power five football. It's a different animal, yeah. and he's gonna shoot load more attention now than he ever did at Jackson State, even at Colorado. I mean, how many games have set ratings records this year? Um, mm-hmm. So he is aware of that. Sure, sir, some of that is definitely self brought on, self imposed type of stuff. But yeah, I mean. It's just not a good look when you consistently say, hey, hey, look at me, and you just keep falling on your face. So I would like to see a little bit more wrinkles moving forward. Of course, very prolific offense. Uh, but as they're going to, you know, this is the tough part of their schedule now. So, you know, I would just hope that the, where the, the way the things are trending for them, I hope they just don't let the bottom just come out from under them completely. Yeah, schedule. I mean, making bowl, making a bowl game at this point is looking like it's an unlikely. I brought it up last week what the schedule was, but I know they have a bye this week, and then it's like I want to say off the top of my head, it's like Oregon State, UCLA, Arizona, Washington. Maybe? Yeah, and like Arizona, like, that, like it's not. Yeah, Arizona's like Arizona's two weeks like a bowl ago. Team. Two weeks ago, oh that's a W. Now it's like oh my gosh, is Fafita for real? Is he going to take that job away from Dar- uh, from uh, Jen Delora? I mean, mm-hmm. he's a pretty prolific guy. I mean, and he's I mean, coming off, a, I would say, a fairly nice thumping over the weekend. It's, it can't be ruled out. I mean, I know he's just a freshman, and this could be a mirage, but, I mean, hey. Absolutely. Uh, Clark, what was, who is your guy of the week? My guy of the week is Jane Daniels. He's the guy who uh, I have previously disrespected. Um, he has been of the West Coast quarterback mold. And for those of you who don't know, that just means you're throwing short and you're putting the weight into the hands of the receivers. Um, despite usually having open guys downfield, he would routinely pass them up in the past. No longer. He's throwing downfield. He's producing some of the best eye-popping numbers statistically in college football. And he is um, overseeing one of the better offenses in the country bar none so of course we know he can scramble to space but this year lsu has found some extra teeth with quarterback draw rpos and of course auburn they're in rebuild mode but still in the tiger bowl it was a decisive win no doubt about it Jaden daniels was definitely one of my guys this week yeah 
It, it's crazy because my preseason expectation for LSU, I, I was high on LSU going into the year. And my question was, uh, is Jaden Day is going to hold on to this job? Is Garrett Nussmeyer kind of breathing down his neck a little bit? Yeah. And, if they're not transferring, you would have to think, yeah, he would not be too far away from stealing a job potentially if Jane Daniels didn't produce these big plays that we're seeing, for sure. But also, the LSU defense has mm-hmm. just been so terrible this year exactly. that I, I think that's – like if LSU had been able to get a few stops against Florida State and Ole Miss, Jaden Daniels would. I mean, he still kind of is on the outskirts, but Jaden Daniels would be in the Heisman Trophy conversation firmly because you know, LSU. Yes. You, maybe you have like another loss to mess with before you uh, get knocked out of the playoff conversation. Like they need absolute chaos to get into the uh, college football playoff conversation because you lose at Ole Miss because you can't get one stop ever. You lose against Florida State because in the second half you fall apart. But Jaden Daniels' numbers, I mean, we got to talk about this. 2,200 yards, 22 touchdowns, three interceptions through the air. On the ground, like you were saying, the quarterback draw RPO, 515 rushing yards, four touchdowns, including a 55-yard run. Jaden Daniels is balling out this year. Deserves a ton of credit for, like you said, Clark, a guy who we knew was talented for Arizona State, but we didn't know if he had a Passing-wise. Yeah, like. We didn't know if this was like, like, this is like, I was just saying Heisman level play. It's just that the results aren't there. And it has, honestly, it doesn't have much to do with Jaden Daniels. It has to do with the defense. Um, Yeah. Um, at media days, I mean, you can parse semantics during coach speak all you want, but for me, when a coach goes out of his way in a glorified um, PR event, like SEC media days mm-hmm. are, and he uses the word concerning multiple times describing your defense. I'm taking note, and that was Brian Kelly, my friend. So he brought in a lot of help through the transfer portal. Of course, that's a lot of different pieces that you're trying to mesh, get up to speed, and play all as one because defense, unlike offense, you kind of have to play more as a unit. Um, as Kentucky found out, all it takes is one guy to mess up for the whole unit to look like a, a butt on a fake punt attempt that basically swung the ball game for the Missouri Tigers. But I digress. Um, yes, I mean, it doesn't matter – how many points you score, if you're going to consistently allow five or six touchdowns yourselves, it's not great. I mean, that's that's classic Big 12 football. There's been plenty of examples of prolific Big 12 offenses that just have very mediocre records because of their defense. And um, even though I do have a lot of respect for Matt House, it's just, yeah, they just have not been able to find a whole lot of consistency this year, particularly on the back end where they had a lot of new faces. Yeah, I, it's LSU, one of the – Bigger just, I mean, maybe it's me for underrating what Brian Kelly was saying at SEC Media Days, but this isn't even like concerning. This is, they're one of the worst defenses in the entire country. It's a like, and this is an now. SEC, it's yeah, a it's, now. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's unfortunate <laughs> because that's what's going to cost them a shot in the playoff, probably. Because you look at how this SEC West is breaking down, all of a sudden, Alabama, maybe they're turning it around, but you play Georgia, who might be down this year, maybe down some key players, and LSU could have maybe been that SEC representative in, and it just it's a shame. But I agree with you. Jaden Daniels always deserves to be a guy, especially the way he's been balling out this year. Not my guy. Another quarterback. I I gotta stop. I gotta stop with UCLA. I think Dante oh, Moore. It is regular is regular programming for Dante Moore to throw a pick six, like at like the worst time ever. Just uh-huh. pick six. First play against Utah, pick six. Right before half, about to take a two-possession leave against Wazoo, pick six. Oregon State, right before the half, they're driving down, pick six. What's good with you, Dante Moore? Stop with the pick sixes. Like I, th- These are 
out of control. He's getting linebackers in stride. Go the other way, man. Like, what is good with UCLA? The run game looks good. They ran all over Oregon State last week. Dante Moore, 4.26 yards per attempt. The Oregon State secondary is the weak point of this defense. I mean, UCLA outgained Oregon State. Lose by double digits. I mean, come on. Killing me, Dante Moore. Yeah, he's definitely turning the wrong way. Another bad week will be outside of our impact 300. So that's like the top 300 players in the country, whatever. So with that, with those weapons, that can't possibly be. It's, out. Yeah, Michael Stewart of that. I'm a huge Carson Steele fan. Like, talk Who about – so rushing, stable metrics, these are type of things that you're when you're trying to isolate a running back from his environment. So that's what he can control, yards after contact, broken tackles, negating losses. Three things Carson Steele's very, very good at. So at <laughs> Ball State last year, he literally helped them have the highest yak production of any offense. Um, UCLA had the highest yards before production offense. So when you put those two things together, I'm like, that's going to explode. So we're still waiting for that to happen because the, when they get behind the scoreboard, they can't really lean on the run game as much as they would like. And of course, I know Chip Kelly, fantastic offensive line, especially maximizing his talents. But yeah, it just sucks when you consistently spot the other team points. It's just not yeah. a good recipe for success. Yeah. So Dante Moore, not my guy. Clark, so do you want to go on another Colorado tangent? Because you you hinted at where not your guy was. You you're more than welcome to. No, another not my guy. I hinted at it earlier. Um, I'm an SEC honk, and my SEC honk alma mater is the University of Kentucky. They Oof. lost over the weekend, and it was classic Kentucky football fashion with a fast start. And then as soon as the second quarter ended, and I do mean that literally, you can check the play-by-play. As soon as the second quarter started, it was all Missouri. And it was uh, basically uh, boiled down to the fake punt play in Kentucky territory. Kentucky was in safe coverage, safe punt coverage, and they still allowed a touchdown on the play. It was basically a one-on-one fade along the left sideline to – um, a backup receiver against UK's starting corner, Andrew Phillips. And he is definitely not my guy because including that play that swung the ball game, he had two pass interference penalties, three missed tackles, Ooh. including a TFL, a potential TFL on third and goal that turned into a touchdown. So that's two touchdowns he was responsible for. And then a chunk completion on third and five because he could not adjust to fast motion against Theo Weiss. So Andrew Phillips was not my guy last week. That that it, That's... A very fair, not my guy for all different purposes between like actual ineffective play and fandom. I, I like that. Not my guy. One of the stronger ones we've had on the show. I mean, to be so, fair, it was yeah, a team dumb. effort from Kentucky. I mean, to quote basketball, a classic sports movie, you know, it was a team effort out there and it took a whole lot of people working together to lose that one. It wasn't just <laughs> Andrew Phillips, but he definitely did stand out. Absolutely. And before we turn the page to week eight, a little extra point, just one thing that I'm thinking about that I want to take with me into next week. And um, it's the FAU Owls, a team that I was very high on preseason. Owls on they, the they didn't really, I knew they had a tough non-conference and they didn't really impress. They played Monmouth. They played Ohio, which they lose. They played Illinois, which they lose competitively. And they played Clemson. They got smoked. Casey Thompson had high hopes for him. He tears ACL in the, want to say it was the Clemson game. He tore his ACL. They go to Daniel Richardson, who has plenty of time from Central Michigan. They get a bye week. They've come out of the bye week, and they look rejuvenated. They look like they now are taking, the offense is taking off. Like I had hoped when I made some bets on them to win the AAC and go over their win total. 
They beat Tulsa, first AAC game. Granted, it's Tulsa, but rainy game, got it done at home. They then went to USF, who kind of a weird team to figure out this year. They play really fast, a lot of running, uh, aggressive blitzing scheme. FAU and Daniel Richardson absolutely cooked. 31 of 38, 382 yards, three touchdowns. McMahon the talented running back at 75 yards on the ground. Hang 40-plus. I mean, absolutely carve. Big game against UTSA. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. But FAU back, in my opinion, what is an AAC that is worse than I had even thought going into the year. I think SMU is not as good as I thought they were. I think Tulane is vulnerable. Memphis well, is nothing special. I think FAU is back on track like I had hoped going into conference play. I mean, yeah, you just mentioned one of the teams that was going to be one of the favorites is just ass this year, UTSA. Because Frank Harris, I mean, I don't know what was wrong with him. He just started the year hurt. I don't know. But with him not right, that team has not been right. And they've just been a immensely lesser version of what they were last year. So, yeah, it's a, it, I think it's the a Bo- Tom company. Herman and the Boca boys are – they're back on track like I had hoped. So, who, we'll see who? if they can maybe – we can see if they can turn on. What's one thing you're looking for, Clark, uh, that you saw last week that you're taking with you as, you know, you start thinking about week eight? Well, I love Jaron Morris on the defense. I mean, like no one really thinks sex, uh, safety is a sexy position to talk about, but he's low-key one of the best in the country. Um, he's definitely on my radar on a weekly basis just to see how he can keep them in ball games by limiting explosives. Of course, if you win the explosive play battle, that's a good recipe to create wins for yourself. It's more correlated to winning ball games than winning the late, rushing for more than your opponent, winning the turnover battle, getting more big plays than your opponents. And since you are on the back end, since we're responsible for capping those things, Jaron Morris is definitely something I look forward to on a weekly basis for the Owls. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And then what was your extra point uh, moving forward? Oh, moving forward, yeah. You got to see if Richardson can keep it up. So, yeah, CMU, Mac Ball, talk about what you don't know what you're going to get in week in, week out. So we got to see him have about a, a three, four, five-game stretch where you can know what you're getting out of him build a baseline, and then, of course, that's great for uh, being a play caller because then you can then hone in on what you are doing well and avoid the stuff that you have been terrible at. Yeah, and again, uh, FAU, small home dog to UTSA, and then schedule really opens up, and this is part of the reason why I like them heading into the year. Obviously, I was expecting Casey Thompson to play a little bit better and stay healthy, but it, listen, things happen. Injuries yeah. happen, you can't predict. But they do go to Charlotte the following week. They play at UAB the week after that. Then they get ECU home Tulane at Rice. So the ECU schedule is the, like the worst, worst team in the country. That like some of those schedules opening up for this team. Yeah. And yeah. I think FAU is a team trending upwards also because of that tricky non-conference schedule. Again, they beat Monmouth. Sure. That's an FCS team at Ohio or they play Ohio at home. They lose a grinder. Ohio is looking like the class of the Mac. I know they lost last week, but they seem to be the most consistent team, especially much better on the defensive side. And then you play two power five teams. So their slow start, I think, is somewhat expected. And now all of a sudden, getting to conference play, competition drops down a little bit, and you're starting to see this offense start to pick it up a little bit. Tom Herman, a great coach. Maybe this AAC, which people I think were kind of looking at, like, okay, it's Tulane and SMU. All of a sudden, it's looking like, maybe one of these teams could get knocked off and there's a surprise entrant into that. And I'm still standing by. I think it's the Owls big game this weekend against UTSA. Yeah. I mean, I think Tulane definitely, if they drop one, that's going to be the team to watch. I mean, I love Michael Pratt heading into this season. He was my top group of five quarterback. Um, I haven't checked the updated numbers, but I expected him to be a um, fantastic mid range producer. 
So those are throws between 18 and 19 yards downfield. Not necessarily the home run ball, but definitely um, throws over the middle that can, or outside the numbers that can consistently carve up defenses and get you those chuck gains. He's just absolutely been great at those things. And, you know, with him coming back from injuries, had two solid games back-to-back. So that's great things mm-hmm. I like to see, especially if you have Tulane winning the conference like I do. Absolutely. Okay. Great stuff talking some week seven. Before we talk about week eight, I want to tell you about my friends over at Profit Exchange and what they're doing. Introducing Profit Boost. Profit Exchange has created a way to make guaranteed money every day. Seriously. Had your favorite sportsbook boost with Profit Boost? Follow at Profit Boost on Twitter to be alerted there's next time there is a free money opportunity. Join the growing community of bettors who are on pace to make an extra $4,000 this year using Profit Boost alone. Sign up for Profit Exchange today and get a no-sweat first bet up to $100 when you sign up with the code EARLYREED. That's E-A-R-L-Y-R-E-E-D, Early Read. Available in the Apple and Google Play Store. Must be 21 and present in New Jersey. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, week eight time. We saw Pac-12 kind of take the stage last week with USC traveling to play Notre Dame, Washington, Oregon, absolute banger of a game. Great game. A lot of eyes on the Big Ten this week because you have Penn State traveling to Columbus to play Ohio State. Ohio State's State's a four-point favorite, total of 47. To me, and Clark, I'll give you plenty of space, but to me, I think there's plenty of questions on both sides. I think that I still don't – first of all, Ohio State's still banged up. I still don't trust Kyle McCord. I think that Ohio State proved their defense is legit against Notre Dame, but to me, the offense – is still what is giving me questions when I think about this team as a college football playoff contender, as a team that needs to get past Michigan this year, who's looking like, to me, the best team in the country. And on the Penn State side of things, I mean, they haven't played anybody. We have no idea anything about Penn State. Drew Aller, or you go, please. Have not played anybody and will not let their star quarterback throw downfield. I, look, they're... Look, it goes without saying you do not want to just be reckless and just throw the ball in the coverage. Mm-hmm. But look, you do not want a check down Charlie either. Um, he has had what six straight games with an, a yard per attempt under like six point eight yards. Um, I don't care how many touchdowns you throw, if you're just throwing it to the flat, it's just not gonna work. So I know he eviscerated that poor reporter at or Jane Franklin did eviscerated that poor reporter at that press conference last week for just Asking a very innocent question that probably could have been worded better and opened the door for Franklin to come out with his teeth. But like I mentioned earlier, explosive plays matter. And the easiest way to get an explosive play in modern day football is to just, well, not really just throw up one-on-one, but orchestrate a one-on-one matchup downfield. And it doesn't just happen to be just running fades. You can be creative in it. I mean, you have two dynamic running backs that usually generate attention. You can do something like this. Can you, see, can you see this? So that's a basic yeah. – that's called a Yankee concept. You see this all the time in the NFL, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, whatever. But it's really trying to test back ends with a deep over and a post over top. Right in the middle of the field, it limits the distance of throw so you don't have to throw outside the numbers. It makes it a little bit easier to force in your line of sight. These are just basic things they can be doing to explore. Now, I love Olu Fushanu. He's one of the best pass blockers in the nation. I think he can hold up. Give him, you know, give 
some opportunities. He's definitely being treated like a first-year starter. They definitely yeah. don't trust him. Um, you can tell when you look at some of the scripts, some of the concepts they run, and I say this all the time. If you count how many times an offense runs like spacing, curl flats, um, every, uh, concepts, patterns where – all routes are within eight yards from the line of scrimmage. You clearly do not test your quarterback to throw the ball downfield. So that really does cap your potential on offense. Now flip to the other side. While Cobb McCord still has some questions to answer, he has three straight games with an average depth of target over 10 yards. They are letting him throw downfield. And each of the last two games, I mean, he's been fairly productive with five touchdowns scored in that frame. So while there is questions with, Who's going to be the running back on any given week? They've been banged up to hell. Mm -hmm. The offensive line has two good pieces, in my opinion, in Fryer and uh, and uh, Donovan Smith. But um, some of the other pieces just have not come together to be a consistent unit. And of course, taking pressure off the quarterback and being a little bit more balanced is immensely uh, important in a key matchup like Penn State, who has a a couple of dynamic pass rushes, Danny Dennis Sutton and Chop Robinson, Damian, who's even had a, a slow year, but you cannot take your eye off him. And, of course, they have di uh, really good linebackers who, if they're only playing one si uh, one facet in the ballgame, you know, if they only have to worry about the run or they only have to worry about dropping back and hitting their spots, well, they're a lot harder to thwart. So while I think Penn State has an immense advantage on defense against Ohio State's offense, I just cannot trust this Penn State offense right now just because they haven't played anybody. They don't ask their quarterback to do too much. And when you're looking at Singleton and Catron Allen themselves, their per efficiency metrics and they're like outside their counting stats, they're really nothing special within the uh, Singleton's been a little – Singleton has been uh... – underwhelming i still think he's filthy but i, mean, everyone was I was expecting was like i thought they were gonna first run rounder, right yeah future first like, rounder. i'm like he's not playing like a future first rounder and he, i mean sure uh trayvon henderson he himself could be a potential first rounder uh mayan uh, god mayan williams always get the yep. last names mixed up but he's a bulldozer a truck talk about stable metrics like he had one of the top returning ones in the country but like they just can't get a consistent effort from them on the field and like i said if it's just going to be Kyle McCord's arm and as talented and as fantastic as Ibuka, and of course Marvin Harrison Jr., why can we not bring him up? We should, he should have been the first thing out of my mouth talking about this matchup. Like, how can they stop him? Well, Kalen King, he's a really good corner himself. So that's going to be a fantastic matchup. Just, I just think Penn State has so many more answers for them defensively than what Ohio State has potentially uh, that known wins, I should say, at this point in time. But um, it's going to be a game where I'm still going to take Penn State, but because of that offense where I don't trust it, I, do, I wouldn't blame anyone going pure money line Buckeyes here. Yeah, I my my feel is towards the under here, this game to yeah. me. Like I'm getting I, – I bet the under in the Notre Dame-Ohio Dame State game for similar reasons that I feel like I'm getting to that same answer in this game. I don't trust Kyle McCord. I – like last week I watched the Purdue game and yeah, he was chucking the ball to Marvin Harrison, but like Purdue had one of like the worst defensive game plans I've ever seen a team, especially with Ryan Walters, who I know plays man coverage, but you don't have Devin Weatherspoon or Brown anymore in, in the secondary. They He had the slowest DBs trying to cover Marvin Harrison in one-on-one -on -one man coverage. Of course, just throw the ball up to Marvin Harrison Jr. Of course he's going to catch it or he's going to put a play on the ball. and be a PI. So I think that maybe that's inflating some of the numbers. I agree with you 100%. Drew Aller 
I don't know why they haven't taken the training wheels off of him, especially in these blowout scenarios where you're trying to get him some confidence. Because I love Drew Aller. Really high on him coming into the year. I still think he's going to be pretty damn good, but we just don't know it yet. He's averaging less than seven yards per attempt. Only three big-time throws to one turnover-worthy play. He's played in six games. Yeah. That's and where, just, I guess where that are is, the downfield shots? That's just a massive encapsulation nugget to just tell you how handcuffed he's been. And again, poor reporter who was unnecessarily eviscerated. It is a very, very honest concern with this offense right now. Well, so here's what I'm thinking. Like, what, what I, if I'm projecting out how this game could go, mm-hmm. maybe it's something like Michigan last year. Maybe Jim Knowles and the Ohio State defense learned their lesson because last year we didn't know if J.J. McCarthy could take the top off of the Ohio State defense. And then three play-action deep bombs later, and I believe it was Cornelius Johnson, boom, Michigan up big, and then they run away with the game. They run yeah. away and hide. Mm-hmm. Maybe this was like one long this is a half season worth of possum from James Franklin, where he's like, okay, we're not going to show anything whatsoever that Drew Aller has this beautiful arm, the 6'5, 240 pounds. Uh, I believe he's a sophomore now. Chucking like it down the trunks. Field. Like he, he has yeah. the frame you want. And like, it's like, not to, to quote Michael Caine and Batman Begins, what's the point of doing all those bloody push ups? You can't even lift along. Like, what's the point <laughs> of having that, dude, if you're not going to let him do his thing? So it's very I, frustrating. So maybe this is one big, long rope a dope here from the Penn State offense that they're going to try and take the top off of Ohio State because I don't know listen if you look at the schedule you knew that this is how it was going to go yeah so maybe it this is the one where Drew Aller takes some deep shots down the field I don't know if Penn State has the receivers to necessarily test Ohio State like Michigan did last mm-hmm. year but I could see that as that but listen I, I'm not gonna say Drew Aller is playing poorly he's completing 75 percent of his passes that are less than 10 yards he's do he's going through the progressions he's making the right plays but again it's going to come to a point where is Penn State going to have enough wiggle room to sustain drives if they're just, like you said, spacing concepts, curl flats, everything eight yards and in? Because then that's all of a sudden Ohio State. Ohio State's defense, to me, has proven to be the part this year. It's the offense I'm a little bit more concerned about. Ohio State's going to start putting guys in the box. They're going to start, you know, and Big maybe Tommy again. Ek- Eckenbacher. Oh, Ekin, I can never get his last name right. But, yeah, Big Tom in the middle there. Like, he's, he's not going to be pushed around. My like Williams is not going to be pushed around. Uh, they have a lot of talent on the defense. Davidson Igavison, I would say he has had a more consistent season than Kalen King. Kalen King's been more of like a shadow corner so far this year. He hasn't really been a ball hawk. I think Dave uh, Igavison coming from transfer from Ole Miss, he's been more of a ball hawk, more of an impact type of corner. Of course, I mean, it means one thing if you're just completely shutting a guy down, but another thing, if you're creating a possession for your offense in a tight ball game, which we expect it to happen. So, yeah, I do think the under is going to happen. I think it's going to be a tight butthole game from James Franklin. Like, they're going to really ask Aller to string together long sustained drives, multi-digit drives. I don't think that's going to work out better for them. I think Ohio State, just in the day, they're just more explosive. Um, even if their running backs aren't ready, they're going to have the more explosive pass catchers on the field. And uh, let's not forget, Cape Stover, a tight end changing the game, who can absolutely find mis- mismatch opportunities himself. So I even though – I do think Penn State, top to bottom, is a more talented roster. Just how the makeup of the team is right now and where they're grooving, it's really tough for me to ignore the Buckeyes here. It really is. Uh, I I agree. The more I've thought, I thought I'd be more into Penn State this week. And the more I think about it, the more I think maybe Ohio State hits like one. Like, again, it's the Notre Dame game. I can't get out of my head just because of how Penn State has been treating the season. And we don't know. So that's the question mark. So, I kind of dragged my feet with taking the under. It's 
went through a key number. It's now 47, 48, one of the most key numbers in college football totals. So I don't know if I'm going to have a play on this game. Probably going to be pulling for Penn State because I don't really like Ohio State's makeup this year. Um, But we'll see how it goes. That is, to me, the biggest game of the day, noon. uh, That should be a banger of a game to Clark's country, SEC country. Stocks from Tennessee, Alabama. Alabama laying eight and a half, total 47 and a half. Bama looks like they're rounding into form a little bit on offense. So I think, listen, they kind of played with their food in this Arkansas game. It became a little dicey. I don't know if the result was ever necessarily in doubt. Arkansas had one drive at the end to make something happen. I don't believe they got anywhere. I think they stalled at it like the 30 or something. Yeah, They're like on 30. And... Eight play stall. Yeah, they didn't get it. Yeah, like it was, it was never happened. The result was never really in doubt, even though the score didn't look as dominant. Uh, Tennessee, meanwhile, someone who bet Tennessee last week, that was an incredibly frustrating experience, even though we, I won my bet, so I'll take it. Uh, Tennessee beats Texas A&M. Joe Milton does not look good once again. The running game continues to look very good, though, for the Vols. Going on the road here, though, I do think that we're trending towards these are two different classes of teams this year, where Alabama, maybe they're not college well playoff elite, but this is top 10, 15 team in the country, pretty firmly, New Year's Six Bowl for sure. Whereas Tennessee to me is more the eight win variety where they're, you know, pretty good. They'll win who they beat who they beat. They can't beat the teams better than them this year. Um, Clark, how do you see this one? Well, Alabama should be the favorite. Uh, they have been as crazy as it sounds because Alabama has definitely not been a consistent operation. They've been the more a consistent team this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, that clunker against Florida, it's, it's really tough for me to forget when thinking about Tennessee. But, yeah, Jalen Milrow, he had a 24% accuracy percentage last week and had an 11.1 adjusted net passing yards per attempt. So that should just tell you just, like, how volatile things can be. He's not really throwing great balls, but he's pushing the ball downfield, and those tend to be his better throws. So he is producing. He is one of the top quarterbacks in the country and expected points added per play because of that. And, of course, even though he does take a lot of sacks, he's very, very dangerous running the ball uh, in and in outside the structure. But the problem is, like I kind of hinted when he's taking a lot of sacks, got to blame the guys up front. And the guys up front have been really inconsistent, not only this year, but you got to go back to uh, 2021. So um, I had this tweet out last week, and it's crazy that this is not getting a bigger deal, Reed. It's really a crazy deal. <laughs> I, I got to retweet it now to pump it up. I, well, <laughs> I okay, since 2021, when you're looking at concepts, when you're pulling alignment, Alabama has had a sub 30% success rate. Now, a success rate, it can have a lot of different um, definitions, but it's basically trying to put everything in a yes-no box. Did you gain the X amount of necessary yards to gain in your situation. First downs, 50% of yards to gain. Second down, 70%. Third and fourth, obviously, those are do or, down, get, do or die downs. So you must convert 100%. Using that gauge, they have had a sub-42% first down rushing success rate, no matter the concept. So when they're pulling linemen, they've been bad. When they're on first downs trying to run the ball, no matter what, they've been bad. So that's not a good recipe for success because if you're on offense, the best third down offense is an offense that can avoid third downs the best. Like we just mentioned, it's a do or die down. It's a one-off. The defense wants to put you in that situation because if you fail, you're off the field and you're not going to be able to score points. But if you avoid those situations by being better on first downs, you're going to be a lot better. But look, no matter who's been in the air, no matter who's been the offensive play caller, no matter what type of concept they have tried, they have consistently struggled to establish the run. So this past weekend against Arkansas, they have done what they have done this season. 
basically trying to avoid those pulling plays altogether, running duo dive, which is a north-south gap play. Uh, you know, you're just trying to find daylight, read the backer, bounce space, and then your normal inside zone read, which is the zone, the zone counterpart. So, again, they haven't been able to pull stuff. But this past weekend, they've been exploring why insert. So why is that important, Reed, you might ask. So it's not asking somebody to pull. It's still asking your lineman to either uh, work their isolated matchups in the box or zone flow. But you're also getting a hard edge, a lead blocker between the tackles, and you can have a crease there. So speaking of Tennessee, they have had immense success with the Y insert play and the tackle dart. So basically uh, a backside tackle is taking on that lead blocker responsibility. Everything else is the exact same. And when you're doing that and you're spreading wide receivers out wide, it can be really tough to defend people sideline to sideline. So Alabama not being able to find a lot of consistency. I hope that maintains in their offense, but because – Everything that they've been able to produce is just through Jalen Milrow. And I don't think a lot of people would say that is like, yes, absolutely. That That's a, that's a maker. Uh, that's a absolutely golden way to operate no matter who you're playing. I mean, it's full of, it's riddled with potholes. It's riddled with things that can go wrong for you. We've already seen some examples, the Texas game. Hello. And then the, the very next week, they didn't even feel like playing him because they thought he was so untrustworthy, but um, just because of how, um, they have found an identity identity that way, ironically. Again, like even though we know it's kind of watered down what it is, it is what it is, and it has been pretty effective so far for, for Alabama. While Tennessee, they have a strong-arm quarterback, and while they do the super spread type of tactics trying to make you defend not only sideline to sideline but end zone to end zone, the deep downfield ball just has not been there. And that's oh my so God. frustrating. It, it, when you have someone like Joe It is so bad. Yes. Joe Milton's deep ball – is one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my entire life. This is from Pro Football Focus. Joe Milton on deep passes of 20-plus yards this season is 8 for 35. That is a 22% completion percentage, seven big-time throws to four turnover-worthy plays. There's zero downfield threats for this Tennessee offense. They're all terrible throws. I just – I don't uh, – I don't. this Tennessee offense, it's not what Hendon Hooker's – and Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman were last year. This is a very different Tennessee offense. Now, I would put a little bit more blame on the receivers. They are not as collectively fast part, part as they of the, were last part of the year. Part of the problem. They are not as, I would say, willed. So they can get warded off their mark a little bit more. And if they just get you know a little stutter step, well, the passing's a lot on timing, especially with Joe Milton. If you're just a little step slow, a little step slow um, that could end up being 10 yards behind the freaking attempt because of just – how much he puts on he has thing. he has no he has no touch on the ball it is uh, all, no. all speed it's uh, all gas it is all gas on his deep ball but i mean mechanically it's still fine which that makes it it, it enhances the frustration when you're trying to evaluate him because it's like oh well he's dragging his back foot or his his, his he's keeping his elbow low so ball, the ball sailing i was like no it's tight and compact it's it's just like Superman syndrome. He just doesn't know his own strength and he can't control it. It's just really, it's really frustrating. Yeah, for sure. And going back to what you were talking about with Alabama's run concepts and how they're changing and evolving as the season goes on, like that's such strong analysis. And it's so, it's really wise. I, from my notes, because Alabama has, like you said, in the first down success rate, is really concerning because it's putting them now in obvious passing situations where it's and they don't have Bryce Young, the magician to bail them out anymore. Even though like exactly. Zero has been backyard Bob, but again, it's not what you want to lean on down to down. Sorry. Keep it is, it is not 
consistent. It's not consistent enough to make a college football playoff contender, in my opinion. But Jalen Milrow, a guy who I questioned if he could take the top off of defenses and consistently get there. I think it's being a little too forced onto him. But this year, Milrow on deep throws, an eight out of 36 yards, 16 big time throws, zero turnover worthy plays, completing 61% of those passes. So Jalen Milrow, when asked to get the ball down the field, he's been doing it with a suspect offensive line and a pretty mediocre group of receivers. So I will give some love to J- I will give some love to Jalen Milrow. I mean, I think Jermaine Burton gets a little bit of hate, a little too much hate, but they I mean they have been an underwhelming, like for what their pedigree I'm saying the, is, like the 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 whole part, their, the whole yeah, I mean for unit. what their pedigree is, you would expect a little bit more pop there for sure. But like even Jermaine Burton, most people don't know, Reed. Each of the last two years, Homeboy has finished no lower than second in adjusted catching success rate and percentage of targets that generated first downs or touchdowns. You don't hear his name mentioned that much because his volume numbers just haven't been there. But per opportunity, he's been fantastic. And when you watch Alabama this year, it's nothing but conversions and touchdowns yeah. when he catches the ball. So he's, he's been, continu- I mean, the he's Texas still being M game was insane. He's still being his, his same self. It's just, yes, the consistency there. But um, uh, I would say um, for Tennessee's receivers themselves, who like Dante Thornton, who I thought in particular he was one of my highest rated impact transfers coming from Oregon. He basically caught, um, was it, it was either, yes, it was a third of Bo Nix's deep passing yards last year by himself. I thought with that super spread scheme, it would just, it would just immediately translate to being an impact player for the balls. But yeah, he's been a really quiet guy this year. And, you know, them losing Brew McCoy, who's been their, who's their ex receiver, so outside receiver. Yeah. On the left side of the formation, they do the old air raid. They just land lock their guys. They don't move them around. Um, he had a devastating injury two weeks ago. And Nimrod, he's been a, uh, and let's just say, a wait-and-see type of replacement for him. But, yeah, that is just a unit then themselves that you would like to, you know, you mentioned the run game that has been working. Just a little bit more cushion with those safeties that have to play back and uh, take away those home run balls. But, you know, it's a yin-yang type of thing. Take the home run ball and uh, allow available running lanes or clog the running lanes and leave your guys open with only one guy to uh, try and cap them. So, um, again, whether it's that white insert, that dark, Tennessee schematically is fine, but that offensive line has not been as good as Bama's at caving people in. It's, it's, yeah. consistently. It, it's been more of a – I mean, both of these guys have um, great running back where Jalen Wright – He's been a little bit more inconsistent than Jalen McClellan in terms of like production or in terms of efficiency, but it's it, it swapped in terms of production. So McClellan has been consistently efficient in breaking tackles, not so much with Wright, even though Wright has kind of better numbers. But both yeah. of them are near the top of the conference in broken tackles, things that are sexy, like I mentioned. You want to see your running back do those types of things. If you're isolated with a guy in space, can you make the defense reallocate more resources to stop you, which then, of course, opens up other things down the line, blah, 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 blah. But, yes, um, I just think just because the big playability hasn't been there for Tennessee, they have to lean into the RPOs with the dart, the insert, and the, the tunnel screens or hitches. Again, that's the sideline to sideline aspect more than the end zone the end zone aspect. That it's just, It hasn't been there. Milton with the dead last explosive pass rate at the conference entering this week. Yeah. Again, with the big arm, you don't want to see that. And, again, playing into the theme, explosive plays, big play battles matter. Alabama's been better at that thus far, being, I think, I know they're at least one or two in the conference and producing them on a per-snap basis entering this week. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Alabama is built, like similar to last week against Arkansas, like built to cover a big spread against eight. 
even if we don't think Tennessee's as good a talented opponent, a team with like some actual dudes. I mean, Tennessee's defense, especially up front, has been very impressive. Sub three yards per carry. They absolutely shut down Texas A&M's run game, in my opinion. Where I think Tennessee's ultimately going to lose. You just said the explosive place. Also, the secondary first time challenge last week against Texas A&M, and I was pretty concerned about what happened in that game. A lot of third and longs converted. Also, a bunch of PIs by Tennessee. I don't have the number up in front of me, but it just felt like there were four or five pass interferences, some of which were just like completely inexplicable. Like I want to say it was um, to the Indiana transfer McCullough. Am I saying it right? Like, uh, transfer from somewhere. Well, he uh, McCullough transferred to Oklahoma. That's oh, then I saw McCullough. Is, someone, is someone on t- Tennessee? Uh, oh, Judy McCullough. from BYU. Maybe that's who I was thinking of. Like, yeah, absolutely an A&M receiver, like, three, a second early. Like, just laid him out, trying to contest a pass. Like, I think Tennessee going on the road, Alabama obviously lose the game last year. This seems like one where Bama really kind of suffocates them. I don't feel confident about betting Bama. Um, I think under is probably good here as well, but I think this is where Tennessee kind of gets outclassed. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you want to think of secondaries as kind of like an offensive line, you're only as good as your weakest link. It doesn't matter if you have Kamal Hayden, who's balling, if you have three other guys who are bums. Uh, and when you're looking at Alabama, you have Taron Arnold, you have Caleb Downs, you have Kool-Aid McKinstry, you have a lot more yeah. proven guys on that side of the ball. 100%. Let's keep it moving. Florida State hosting Duke. Duke. Uh, without Riley Leonard last week, still outclasses North Carolina State. My uh, lowly Wolfpack uh, going out and whimper this year. FSU laying two touchdowns, total of 49. We don't know what's up with Riley Leonard. I mentioned on the Thursday pod last week, I didn't think he was going to play. He didn't play. Was spotted without a boot pregame on Saturday, so maybe he is trending to play. Mike Elko said he was day-to-day Monday afternoon at his press conference. That being said, if he is going to play – he is three weeks removed from what was called a high ankle sprain. So I think that this would be a pretty remarkable recovery. Be very especially optimistic. If, if yeah. It, and if he plays, we're probably not getting 100% Riley Leonard. We're getting hobbled Riley Leonard. On You're going to have to get a pocket passer Riley Leonard, which has not been a good risk. has not been a good. Exactly. Riley Leonard, Leonard. The, the, to me, Duke's real efficiency comes from Leonard being almost like a bulldozing like running quarterback that kind of sets everything up. Be that six, five lanky guy in space and and push. Yeah. So Duke has a lot to play for this year. I completely get it. I just don't know if Riley Leonard's going to rush back from this again. He like might be a first round pick when this is all said and done in the draft this spring. I don't know the backup beeline. He only threw, he only completed four passes against NC state. They just ran all over the Wolfpack. They won 24, three. So they didn't have to show much in that game. To me, this is an under game. I like the under 49 here, whether it's Leonard and he's hobbled or if it's beeline and he's going to be thrown into situations where he's going to have to throw. I hope he doesn't throw a pick six. That kind of throws that a whack. But I think that there's been a recipe for Duke in like this underdog role this year. They played Clemson as a double digit home dog. They played Notre Dame as a small home dog. Both games, very slow. Duke is uh, out to the top 90 in plays per minute. They want to limit explosive plays. They want to lean on their veteran defensive line. They want to run the ball often to somewhat efficiency and then win inside, you know, scoring distances, hold to hold to three. The one caveat that we haven't mentioned is that Florida State has a top five pass catching group, which Clemson and Notre Dame definitely do not have. So can Florida State take the top off this defense and kind of run the score up on them? It's possible. I will say, though, this Duke secondary has been fantastic this season. 
They are top five in explosive pass defense and second in yards per pass attempt. So Duke secondary has held up very nicely. I think that this game is going to be slow. I think Duke's going to try and grind this out, slow possessions. FSU isn't much of a fast-paced offense either. They're explosive, but 94th in plays per minute. So this isn't an up-tempo attack. They're both next to each other, 93rd and 94th in plays per minute. And this game's going to be low scoring. I think Duke's really going to struggle to score here. I, I lean towards the FSU side, but like I think that this one's going to be something in the neighborhood of like 27-10, 31-10 with some you know room to spare here. So I like the under 49, Clark. What are you thinking? I just think Florida State's way too talented for this thing to be close. Yeah. I think it's way too talented for them not to potentially get the over by themselves. Okay. They're, they have two monsters of pass catchers. You have a 6'4 guy, Keon Coleman, who not only has top 10 look at that catches, he returns punts as well. He's a fantastic athlete transfer from Michigan State. Of course, picked in country. And then you have another monster in 6'7", Johnny Wilson. And then when you look inside, you have Jaheim Bell, transferred from South Carolina, who is one of these unicorn tight ends who can really create mismatches at at-stat motions, uh, using him in the pa- in the blocking game as well in space in these little rinky-dinky RPOs and these and those little outlets types of things. I just think that there's just too many things for this Duke defense to cap. Of course, that's even before I get someone like Trey Benson, who is yeah. when a physical running back, a fantastic running back so far, uh, basically the last two years in his stint there. So I really do think that um, it's going to be a matchup problem for Duke, even though I really – do like Dwayne Carter producing havoc. He's kind of had a more quiet year than he had last year. He has still been one of their better defensive players. RJ Oban, I need to see a little bit more per snap efficiency for him before I can take him serious as a true havoc creating type of pass rush that you would need in this type of matchup. Of course, if you're an offense like Florida State and you're leaning into the explosive play battle, you might not be as down-to-down consistent, which, of course, as you mentioned, that is Duke's avenue to success. Win those marginal situational games, like they're down, first downs, keep ahead of the chains, but I just think there's too much firepower for Florida State to go quietly. Yeah, and it's like what we've been talking about this entire podcast, the ability to hit explosive plays. And I, I, I said it I said it after the Clemson game week one. When you are not a threat to take the top off the defense, it puts so much pressure on your offense to execute down in and down out. And you saw Clemson fail in week one going all the way back to that Duke game. Clemson should have won that game every which way. Uh, Three I mean, fumbles it, inside the 10. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like, you know, like that's the game. Because they weren't able to rip off explosive plays they weren't able to have a 30 yard pop and you know get to the two and then score score on a 30 yard pass they had to go down the field and when you're trying to string together 12 successful plays in a row that's a lot harder than hitting one explosive play and then like three plays and you're in the end zone you know so i think fsu's yeah that's another off like drew aller Cade club we're gonna talk about clemson a little bit that's the spider-man meme right there yeah they both throw short. They don't produce. I mean, like their first year. Yeah, you could call relatively stale passing offenses. There's a lot of similarities between those two young quarterbacks. So yeah, hundred percent. So I, I I like the under. I bet the under myself. I think that Duke's ceiling, whether it's a hurt Riley Leonard or if it's Beeline, it's pretty capped at a low number. I think FSU's defense starting to look the part. They have a lot of physicality on that defensive line that I think could wreak some havoc. And I I think the offense will do enough to you know push duke far away and probably cover i just like i don't know if this is a game where fsu's getting 35 38 this feels like it's in the lower 
range of outcomes for me just because I do respect Duke's defense and their ability to limit explosive plays um, and maybe make FSU have to go the field, you know, a few extra plays, get some time off the clock. So I like the under there. Oh, under, under or over. I think this is finally a week where Jared Verse has a multi-stack game. I think this is going to be a week where he, we finally hear his name. He's had a very quiet season. He's been another like first round talent, defensive pass rusher, um, you know, winning pass snaps goes a long way, but still, I think the fans want to see some sacks at the end of the day. Analytic people love the pass rush win rate, the pressure rate, all that stuff's fantastic, but he's got to start producing some more sacks. And I think this is going to be a prime matchup for him to finally, finally do that. I agree. SEC ball. Ole Miss travels to Auburn, six and a half point favorites. Total at 56 and a half. Auburn, I... The offense is pretty grim here. Uh, really, I mean, they were able to get 18 against LSU, but it seems like anyone could score on LSU. Uh, Ole Miss coming off the bye. Maybe they're a little bit healthier. Clark, this is your territory here. So yeah. what, how are you seeing this one? Auburn's offense is a mess. Um, earlier this season, it was probably one of the more rudimentary uh, schemes. Um, it's very RPO-reliant, basically, up until the AM game. 40% of their plays were RPOs. Um, and including over a third of Peyton Thorne's attempts. So it was barely ingrained to what they did. And of course, when that failed, they were on in third and longs where they really didn't, they don't have anybody to bail them out of bad situations. Their most, I guess, go-to guy, if you want to put that label on him, has been Fairweather, their tight end, who's been a transfer. So um, they just have not had too many opportunities to shine because the scheme itself hasn't been great. The line, while it, you know they did get by not necessarily playing anybody the first month, they have not necessarily passed uh, the test in SEC play, allowing a decent amount of pressures. And even though I do like a lot of uh, – not a lot, but I do like uh, some pieces on that defense, Ole Miss is just a lot more of a known commodity. I mentioned this to Andy Staples a couple weeks ago. I mean, when you return your starting quarterback, your running back, and your play caller, it takes so much – unknowns out of the weekly preparation you, you cut out the jar i mean you can have shorthands with each other you have uh, chemistry a lot of other stuff so when they're able to stick to their four basic things that they like to do so they like floods they like counters they like outside zones they just really like to stress defenses sideline to sideline and then like we mentioned earlier set them up for stuff like this those yankee shot posts it's very common to see uh lane kiffin shoot his arms up before the balls have been thrown <laughs> anticipating touchdown most times, Yankee shot. He's anticipating that deep post is coming up. And so they have a lot of complementary things that work together, whether it is that bash stuff. So bash is where the quarterback and the running back switch assignments in the run game where the quarterback will follow the pullers and the running back will hit the edge potentially against a flat third defender if he gets the read. They love that type of stuff. So after the bye week, though, we have to see what they're going to do schematically because when they have done power reads, power veers, depending on your vernacular, you know, the 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 – Lamar Jackson play. Everyone knows the Lamar Jackson play with a guard is pulling, guys hitting the edge, quarterback can get north and south. They do that with wide receivers a decent amount, but they have sucked running them. So that is part of the scheme because of that eye candy type of thing, setting up play actions, RPOs. Again, um, it is a, a member of that super spread scheme like Tennessee that likes to have a lot of marriage between the run and the pass. Um, when you're looking at quarterback makeup, like usage rate, when you're looking at like, true dropback play action, RPOs and screens. Um, it's a good bet that Ole Miss quarterbacks, Tennessee quarterbacks, and Arkansas quarterbacks are near the top of the SEC in those regards. Of course, this year, Jackson Dart 
No exception to that rule because of how they just like to have all that blend together. But of course, if you can get them behind their script, they're a little bit more easy to stop because they don't have a lot of breadth of plays on any given week. They like to repeat their script. So if it works earlier in the game, it's a good bet they're going to go back to it. Yeah. Go back to the well. They are not somebody that has 10,000 wrinkles to prepare people. But like I said, because they have a lot of experience with each other, the starting back, I should say, and the play callers, and uh, they have a tremendous group of receivers. It's just going to be, I think, a really easy cover for Ole Miss here. No Jordan Hair voodoo in this one. You, you I, think that Ole Miss just has too many too many weapons? I don't have a strong opinion on this game. It's possible. I mean, it had like two years ago. Bo Nix, or was it? Yeah, was it two years ago? Anyway, it was a last second pull your game out of your ass win from Auburn there. It was basically mm. they ran Auburn's against cover two man, which you would think that should not come open, but they hit up like mm-hmm. like like Michael Crabtree in Texas Tech against Texas all those years ago. They hit the back shoulder, catch and run, touchdown, they win <laughs> the ball game. So other than those two examples, I can't think of a Auburn's beating cover two man in that in that instance there. But yeah, there is definitely possibility some juju can strike Ole Miss here. I just would like to think after um, catching their breath in the bye week that Ole Miss's staff, Ole Miss's talent, Ole Miss's roster, even on the road, should be able to take care of business. That's fair. Yeah, I just don't have a strong opinion for this one, but I think it's an interesting game. Just Auburn, I feel like people are, like, especially after the Georgia cover, people might be, like, really banking that this team could muddy the waters, and that was not the case against LSU. So I'm just not sure if I could get involved in this one. The last game I want to mention before we get to some rapid-fire bets, I definitely want to ask about the Brock Bowers injury. Miami Clemson uh, came across – on Monday afternoon, Tyler Van Dyke limping. I think it was the word was a leg uh, sleeve, not a brace. I think it was a sleeve if you want to you know, be a doctor there, but was limping. So TBD takes a shot against North Carolina. He's now banged up Miami minus four in the turnover uh, battle against North Carolina. A second straight loss, obviously, two weeks ago. They lose that inexplicable one to Georgia Tech. We've spoken enough about that one. Clemson comes in off their bye week. Still think there's a ton of questions about this Tigers offense and what they can do as I, I hope my dog just doing the fire truck going past my apartment made it into the podcast. I'm not I sure if you it. heard that. I okay, heard the, I heard it. Yeah, that was my dog. That's great. <laughs> but so Clemson takes some money on the news that Tyler Van Dyke might be out with an injury. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. This is a Clemson team I was really high on going into the year. I just – North Carolina was able to torch Miami last week. and scored 41, especially in the ground game. But I think the threat of Drake May kind of opened that up. I think Texas A&M was able to have their way. They have a vertical passing game. Kind of spoke about this a few minutes ago. Clemson doesn't have that. Clemson does not have a vertical pass game. You know, just comparing Drake May to Cade Klubnik, forgot the talent, just – Drake May, average at the target, 9.3 yards. Kate Klubnik, average at the target, 6.7 yards. I don't think Clemson is built to take the top off this Miami defense like the teams that have been able to did. So to me, this looks like a dead under game, under 48 and a half. If TVD's banged up, that's great. I I think that helps my gaze even more, and this age is even better. I also think, though, Clemson's defense is still absolutely nails. They've shut down pretty much everyone. They've shut – I wouldn't say they shut down Florida State, but they definitely kept the lid on that Florida State offense, only let up uh, 31 
in regulation, they only let up 17 points. Is that to Florida State's offense because Clemson or FSU had the scoop and score? So I think Clemson's defense is really going to shut down Miami, whatever they want to do. I think that their passing game is a little bit more gimmicky than reliable. So I like Clemson's defense in this matchup. I also like Miami's defense, which I hold in pretty high regard still, even though they've lost now two straight. I still think this is a bang up unit that match up well with this Clemson offense. So under 48 and a half in the, what is it? Primetime start. Well, you know, TVD plays or not five picks last two weeks. That's just never going to help you win any ball games. Um, no matter how explosive you are, even if it does, I mean, they were in position to win those games had those turnovers not been made, but still it's going to come down to can those five guys up front, those five highly paid guys from NIL on Miami's line, can they hold up? So Matt Lee, he's been one of the top centers in the country. Um, fantastic. But, you know, Javion Cohen coming from Alabama had a rough go of it the last couple of weeks when he started to play actual defensive opponents. So, um, yes, North Carolina's defense is full of some monsters. Cayman Rucker, he's an impact five-star right now. Um, you have Cedric Gray, he's an impact star, linebacker. You have an impact five-star right now. So uh, they're coming off a pretty poor matchup opportunity, but just because they're going right back into the fire, it's hard not to think that Clemson can win a rock fight here uh, with a, a banged-up TVD. I do like Xavier Restrepo as a receiver in a vacuum, but again, if your quarterback is not going to be able to – have a great base underneath of him if he's going to be even more one-dimensional than he already is. I mean, he's a pure pocket passer, Tyler, Beck, Tyler Van Dyke is. But like people who turned in early for the Titans-Ravens game and you saw Ryan Tannehill spray passes all over the field, it wasn't because he sucked. It's because his leg was about to fall off. If you can't have a good base to throw from, it's not going to be a good thing for anybody if you're a Kane supporter this weekend. So I do think Clemson's going to be able to squeak away. I don't know if they're going to be able to recover or not, but I do think they're going to win. I do think it's going to be low scoring. Yeah, I, I lean towards the Clemson side as well. I just think that team's burned me enough, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the under. I think that there's a lot of avenues to getting that bet home. I just I don't trust either offense to really again no. on that explosive play thing. I think, and I think Miami's defense, like great matchup here against Clemson. You know, the rush defense to me because Clemson they want to funnel everything through their ground game. They want to you yeah. know through um, Will Shepard or Will uh, Will Shipley, excuse Shipley. Me. I was thinking, uh, yeah, yeah, SEC receiver they, Will Shepard. No, uh, <laughs> no, wants to go. Clemson if, wants to go on the ground. Miami top ten in rush defense per PFF. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to try and do something they haven't done, they're going to be testing two of the best, uh, one of the best safety tandems in the country in James Williams and Cameron Kitchens. So, um, you know, Kitchens, um, he allowed two touchdowns. You know, like Hunter last week, he was coming back from uh, an extended missed time and had a little rust on him, but still highly thought of by the pro scouts as being a next-level safety. So if they can create some more opportunities for uh, Miami, all good for them. I just don't think that um, – J- I don't think Dabo is going to trust Cade to stretch the ball downfield. I think they're going to really play small, do the run game, and uh, try and win an October ball game when it starts to get a little chilly outside. I, I completely agree. Okay. Before I hand out a few more bets, I have like, I could go f- two, three, four, I got like five or six. So we'll go fast. But I want to ask Clark, because I know you're an SEC guy, mm-hmm. Brock Bowers. Yeah, it's a sad day. Are you thinking, because I'm seeing conflicting reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Famel says it's four to six, and Mick Murphy says the season. I'm going to lean to the ESPN homer. 
Thamel, I think he's going to have a little bit more information because I think he's getting a little bit more directly from the team. It's going to be a little bit more optimistic. And knowing everything I know about Brock Bowers and the urban myths around that kid, he's going to try and play. I think we do see him back, but not before the SEC championship game. I think the regular season, I think it is going to be bad. Uh, Again, it is a tight rope surgery. They're looping. The, his tibia and his ankles basically together. Really fun stuff. You want to read about it, but basically <laughs> a little bit more serious than the low ankle sprain that was originally um, diagnosed by sideline doctor Kirby Smart. <laughs> so, how does this change your opinion of Georgia? Who I've been on this podcast. I still think they're damn good. I think that there's another level for this team to get to. I don't know if they'll ever reach it. I think Carson Beck has been rock solid in my opinion i think they got to take the training wheels off him obviously this kind of changes the calculus so my initial question is how much are you downgrading georgia without brock bowers um well just the last two weeks they have started to find their groove really and so you have to go back to the drawing board so 25 percent of carson beck's passing yards have been to mr beck that's a very very high makeup no matter what type of makeup you have on your team. So um, losing him, you know, you, everyone wants to just think, oh, it's just the passing production. Well, you know what? He's a do-it-all tight end, running, blocking, and receiving. So with him not being going to be on the in line now, it's going to be more Oscar Delp and backups. We've already seen what not having Darnell Washington has done to this unit. They are a lot less consistent paving holes. And sure, when you play against Vandy and you can roast your production having like three or four explosive carries that go for like 30 yards makes the whole thing look a little bit better, but still down to down, there has been some grumblings within dog nation that they need to see a little bit more consistency there. And when you're not having Bowers there, of course that takes away stuff like counters and inserts and all that eclectic stuff, because that's one thing that Georgia has been consistently, uh, or that has been a consistent trade for Georgia has been not really hammering one thing too much, keeping people guessing, and, of course, a lot of uh, Browers' production has come, whether it be off play action, screens, or where he's not necessarily the focal point of what's going on. It's when you know the run game is still being trying to be taken away from the defense, and he's able to be a complete mismatch advantage out in the flank or you know uh, either match up with somebody or not. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a bigger deal than it's led on, but it's not like the cupboard's going to be bare in terms of like who Carson Beck is going to be having to throw the ball to. I have not charted – um the entire conference yet but he has basically a 57 percent passing passing success rate that would be one of the higher clips in the last three years no matter what season so that is really good and just accentuates how great he has been as a decision maker and keeping his offense ahead of the chain so yes he does have a little bit more of a screen rpo makeup than what you would like for a true um qb1 for lack of better words for the best offense in the country but I would like to bring up that the Bennett handled the same way. He was up there with those super spread quarterbacks and using play actions, RPOs, and screens to try and buoy his bottom line and with a whole lot of dropback <laughs> stuff. So they're going to put him in positions to succeed, even though not having Brock Bowers is going to hurt. It does make them certainly less valuable, less explosive, and opens the question marks for if they can continue this consistency. But I do think they're going to be able to do it because they have not changed the previous scheme that had been working, and they have guys like Rob Rob Thomas, Dominic Lovick, Rosemary Jack Saint, the law firm, and Lad McConkey, who's finally 100% healthy. McConkey being healthy is huge. Yes. So, That's one thing they didn't have the first month of the season, and it's really uh, 
it, I mean, it, it really can throw off that rhythm. And of course, now with Bowers not being gone, it's just, can they shift it to do more 10, 11 personnel stuff, fade the 12 personnel stuff with McConkey? But yeah, having him absolutely does help their uh, so, forecast report. So the schedule, they're in a buy right now. The schedule goes at Florida in the cocktail party, home Missouri, home Ole Miss, at Tennessee, at Georgia Tech. Is Georgia running the table still? Like, you're, are you staying like they're going to run the table in the regular season? At least get to the SEC championship game uh, with a spot in the playoff on the line. Um, I do you know that Missouri game is definitely going to be one to watch, my friends. Uh, talk about a team that has um, had a complete turnaround and finding teeth. Um, Luther Burden has been one of the best pass catchers oh, in the yeah. country. Brady Cook. League Burden. Um, League now, Burden, we call him in my parts. Now that uh, their their quarterback, Brady Cook, does not have a hurt shoulder, he's been a little bit more consistent throwing the ball downfield. So last year he was bottom four within the SEC when targeting beyond 15 yards downfield. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's a lot easier to get explosive gains if you are efficient throwing beyond 20 yards downfield, and they have been this season. So I think that's definitely going to be one to watch, but I do think that Georgia, just because they're more overly talented, should run the table, but that's the one that I'm definitely watching the closest. And are you – I don't I, – I guess I didn't – At least in the SEC championship game, I should say. Georgia's still making the playoff. I'll take it one step further. They're making the playoff still? Yeah. They'll, they'll make the – if they get to the SEC championship game, they're going to make the playoff as the number one. Yeah, because they'll beat game. whoever. I think yeah, I think yeah. that does happen. I do think that happens, yeah. And I then think, let's I think get it off, though. Let, okay. Is Georgia going three in a row? No. Who do you think is going to win? Who do I think is going to win? Well, preseason I picked Penn State, but it's going it's wavering more towards uh, Michigan. I just think they have not been tested and they have remained healthy. JJ McCarthy is uh, he's involved, even though he himself has not been put in the driver's seat. But when they ask him to throw, they ask him to throw downfield, and he's not just being a checkdown Charlie. So yes, he's taken a step there. He's been more consistent with his ball placement and Blake Corum. He's still scoring touchdowns left and right. I think Michigan is uh is this the team to beat. I I think Michigan is I don't like I don't think they beat last year's Georgia team. I don't think they, they definitely yeah. don't beat Georgia from two years ago, but this year's Georgia team, I think that they're better than now. You throw this power thing in. I think Georgia, they haven't been healthy all year. I think this is listen, winning three in a row is hard because you need a lot of things to break your way, and it feels like this is the year where I think Georgia gets back to the playoff. They probably get to the national championship also. That being said, it feels like this is the year where, like everything's kind of just going against them, and it, they just, they just don't win. Which you know what, it's that's life. You <laughs> know, like I, it feels like yeah. this. A lot of things are really breaking Michigan's way. That this is going to be their best chance, I think. Given- and when look, everyone like thinking ahead, like at matchup. So I mentioned like Georgia's offensive line hasn't been what you would want. In the run game, I mean, you're looking at Chris Jenkins. You're looking at Mason Graham. Some of those dudes up front for Michigan, well, they're playing really good football. So in terms of, like, what they would be asked to do, I would think that it would be a – I would favor Michigan at this point in time in that crucial potential matchup. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great talk there on Brock Bowers. I definitely want to get your opinion. So I got a few bets I want to give out. So I'm going to go a little rapid fire, and if you have any opinion, Clark, you could chime in as well. We'll start in your country, SEC country. Missouri, South Carolina, over 59 and a half. These both offenses inside the top 35 in EPA per pass. South Carolina just let 41 to Graham Mertz at home. So I think that this is going to be an absolute disastrous matchup uh, for the Gamecocks, especially going on the road. 
We were just talking about Missouri. Brady Cook looks healthy. League burden looks great. Um, Missouri's defense has let up points, though. It's better than what it's better than what you think. I'll just say that. But I it, think South Carolina, though, is going to be able to get theirs, though. Spencer Rattler in this passing game, even with limited weapons. Tops, we'll see like what tops. Rattler shows up and what calls they do. So we know. And so you like? So you don't like the over here? I like. Well, I definitely like Missouri here. I'll just say that. Yeah, I think South Carolina has yeah. been fraudulent this season, and they have remained to exhibit teams that cannot block and teams that cannot defend the pass for the third straight year under their head coach. And like, yeah. unlike previous years, the special team stuff isn't giving them margin victories. And as we've seen, they've started to lose ball games. And when Graham Mertz is throwing downfield against you, I mean, talk about average depth of target. Even after last week, he has one of the lowest clips in the comp and lowest <laughs> clips in the country. So that should just tell you how rocky it's been for them um, defending that facet. So um, Luther Burden, Theo Wees, Brady Cook, um, I, I think they have a little bit more juice, even though um, Rattler, I do value him as a passer. A lot of their scheme um, just is – actually, there's a little reason. I shouldn't say for whatever reason. The reason is because they can't win between the tackles to run. They have to lean yeah. a lot more on the perimeter with screens, and that lowers his average depth of target and puts a lot more weight into his receiver's hands that we would like for someone who's a very special downfield thrower. <sighs> anyway, Xavier Leggett. He's a great matchup guy for them, but can a consistent number two emerge for them? Trey Knox, he's been if, up and down. Julian Simon, he's been up and down. Freddie Robertson, he's been up and down. So um, I just don't think they have enough juice in their passing game to out to uh, outscore Missouri, I, even though um, I don't necessarily have a lot of faith on either offense in terms of consistency. I definitely think that there is going to be a lot of big plays. And, and if both offenses have potential for, for big plays, you could go a lot worse than log, than logically leaning into the over like you're doing. Something like 41-24 Missouri. Yeah. Like, like, I, like something like that. Like I think Missouri could blow them out, but I think South Carolina will hit enough. But what I've seen from this Missouri secondary, I think you're able to pass on them. Like Leary – I know you're a Kentucky guy, but Leary, something just isn't clicking there, whether it's the mechanics or his accuracy uh, just isn't there this year. I think Rattler. He can't see the field as well, and he's not comfortable. And when you can't see it and you don't trust it, things hurt. But I'll tell you what, Reed, <laughs> even after all these miscues, when you're looking at on target, it, like, I mean, perfectly presented passes, but you don't need an unnecessary adjustment to make the catch mm. over 10 yards downfield. Guy was second in the conference entering this past weekend. Leary because or Rattler? Leary. That's why I <laughs> whispered it, because I don't want to create too much of an uproar. And, of course, when you're looking at um, things that are outside of his control, like drops, he's had the worst drop rate in the conference. It's at 14%, so over an eighth of his passes have been dropped. He leads in dropped yards. Um, there's a lot of things that his teams have just been missing on the table. And sure, he himself has not been perfect. His uncatchable pass rate is a little bit higher than what you would like to see can next to that pinpoint perfect accuracy percentage but um with the drops with the bad balls with the hit when thrones with the ill-time penalties up front it's just not been a good recipe for for Leary to stand out and of course i might be an sec hawk he might be playing for my alma mater but besides that no matter who he played for i valued his down-to-down accuracy and something of that has translated but unfortunately the results have just not been there because of all these variables that have undercut it. 100%. Yeah. 
I, I, I think over though. I, I feel good about that one. Uh, next up gross one. Uh, they had a buy last week, so I didn't get a chance to fade them, but I'm back to it. Uh, me UCF plus 19 and a half against Oklahoma. Okay. okay. Uh, I Oklahoma's covered depending on where you got it. They covered every single game. The Cincinnati game is the one in question. Uh, if you listen to the show, you got Cincinnati plus 14 and a half and you covered, but I closed 13 and a half. Um, UCF, I know the defense looks grim and I know that they let up 51 points to Kansas in their backup. But if you go and look at that box score, they were outgained by less than 200 yards. I mentioned this last week and I'm kicking myself that I didn't just bet Oklahoma State straight up. I put them in the underdog round robin. I, I liked Oklahoma State. I didn't take any plus three. I just took the money line. Um UCF, they lose 51-21. They get outgamed by less than 200 yards, though. So the box score looks gross, right? It's like, oh, my God, they lost by 30 to Kansas with their backup. Um, they, the week before that with their back with – That's not fair to Jason Bean. When Jason Bean has played, I, he's been, like, bang for buck king, my friend. Yes, like, so like I next, agree with that. Next I digress. Year, we're going to watch out for Jason King for, like, preseason awards. I mean, even, like, Jalen Daniels was, like, the, the big 12 offensive player of the year preseason. And obviously, injuries have not made that happen. Yeah. But had Jason Bean had extended since, I would not be surprised that he would be um, inside the top 25 quarterbacks in the country. But continue. Yeah. I'm more, I think we're getting a little bit of an inflated number because that box it looks like, oh, my God, they lost by 30. And the week before that with their backup, they blow a 28-point 28 point lead to Baylor. So it looks like a lot's going wrong for UCF. But the offense could still hum. And John Reese Plumley, you know, he recovered from injury. Now he had the bye, and he should be back to healthy. And they're top 10 in yards per play, top 10 in yards per carry. And the real issue with UCF on defense has been their run game, right? their run defense, I should say. Oklahoma has not been able to establish the run at all. It's been a lot of Dylan Gabriel improv runs, but down to down, Oklahoma still below the national average in yards per carry. So getting margin here, I think we're getting a really, really big number with a UCF offense that I can trust. You know, let's say they're down 24. I need a back door. I think they're going to be able to get some points on the board here. Uh I got a thing for fading Oklahoma, so we're going to do it again. So give me UCF plus 19 and a half. Uh, Clark, any thoughts there? You want me to get, get to the next one? Very impressed with how Dylan Gabriel has improved his play versus pressure. Um, he was the probably the worst power five quarterback, depending on what metric you look at, against pressure last year. And, of course, that is uh, an element that you need to elevate if you're going to be in that Heisman discussion like he's in. So very impressed with what I've seen from him. Uh, but I think his arm and I think that passing game is going to be too prolific for UCF to keep it close here. I think John Reese Plumley, as fast and as quick as he is, he's not going to find as many creases. And I think I think Oklahoma is going to do a relatively good job bottling him up, and I think they win comfortably. Okay. Win by win by 20? Or you think you think UCF could keep this up relatively shy distance? I would say this is a 23-point outcome for the Sooners. 23. Ooh. All right. That's fair. I'll give it. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Another one. Just spoke about them. Oklahoma State plus three and a half against West Virginia. I, I think West Virginia, it was nice when they were like the frisky underdog and they were stunning TCU and all that. They lose that Hail Mary to Houston. Yeah, that's and I'm not I'm not gonna be like amateur psychologist and say like the balloons, you know, like the pew, like it's all out now. But I will say Oklahoma State is a team I played on the last two weeks, and this team is trending in the right direction. I know West Virginia has a good defense, but I'm getting three and a half with an, an Oklahoma State offense that they finally go to Allen Bowman. They come out of the bye week. It looks like there's more structure now in this offense. They're starting to push the ball down the field. I think Oklahoma State could keep this close, maybe win the game. I think 
you know, I think you're looking at two different teams from pre-buy versus post-buy. And they took it to Kansas State. They win by eight at home. They were a double-digit dog. They, I know they had to rally to beat Kansas State, but they also had a two-score lead early. So that game was kind of back and forth. I think this game is more of a grind. I think that this game is going to be, you know, played in the trenches. I just, I don't, I think Oklahoma State has a little bit more, we're talking about like that explosiveness. I don't think Garrett Green is doing that week in, week out, carving up, especially a Houston defense. Like Oklahoma State's defense has had some issues this year, but it's definitely a far step up in class uh, relative to Oklahoma, or relative to Houston, I should say. So I think, I don't know, I, I, I think, the pokes are onto something here. So I'll take them uh, plus three and a half against West Bob. Yeah. Um, Ollie Gordon, man, he has had a great last three games and that has definitely coincided with their rise. I still don't think much of Alan Bowen. I think he's just, a at least it's like consistency though. You know, like there's like, there's the, the, the line shifts aren't, that's not going to get it done. That's not winning football. No, no. But um, yeah, I mean like they still have to have a guy to make some throws and he has done that. So I can't hate him on him too much, mm-hmm. even though, I still think it's not going to be an overly scary offense long-term. But, yeah, Ollie mm. Gordon, I think it's enough in this matchup to where it's going to be like a 34-21 type of win. Garrett Green, um, he might have gotten his coach, Neil Brown, off the hot seat, but we still need to see how the uh, <laughs> the back half of the schedule unfolds. But, yeah, it's a offshoot of the classic air raid, which these days is more of a ball control offense, sticking with the theme, short passes, moderate gains, Long drives, they're harder to replicate and replicate and replicate than just snatching an explosive play every once in a while. So I think just because of how Ollie Gordon in both facets, running and catching the ball, has been more dynamic, I think he's going to be the main X factor to back the pokes here. Yeah, uh, two more and then I'll get you out of here. FAU plus three and a half against UTSA. Mentioned it earlier. I think that this team is on the rise. I think the the difficult schedule for FAU and what had happened is kind of – depressing their outlook on the season, but this is a team on the come up. I mean, we faded UTSA last week. It did not work against UAB, but I, I mean, UAB outgained UTSA in the game. I believe they lost a turnover battle. I think it was two, nothing or three, nothing or something, or they were minus two or three in turnovers. Uh, UAB outgained UTSA in the game. I think FAU this passing offense on the rise UTSA. They got out of last place in terms of coverage grade for PFF. They're now 131st in coverage grade. Um, so I think FAU's offense is going to be able to cook at home here. Uh, you know, two Conference USA imports, I don't really care. I think uh, FAU, the defense looks good. The offense is rounding up. I think home dog, give me three and a half for sure. Yeah, I got three, so I'm going to track three, but you could get three and a half out there, and I, I, I like FAU quite a bit. Yeah, home dog three and a half. I think you, you take that against a team that has a lot of question marks, especially like we mentioned earlier, through the air. Jacorian Clark has been a no-show because of the passing game. Oscar name, the tight end. He's been a no-show because of Frank Harris's um inconsistency. So yeah, I just think there's um in terms of like where teams are trending, I think the Owls is a very prudent home dog back cover here. Yeah, I I think and then also just like another thing that I've noticed, FAU. 21st in explosive rush defense. And, you know, it, it's kind of like this theme and like what I've been trying to look at for teams, like mm-hmm. tackling grades on PFF. Yeah, you know, who, is, who Who is wrapping up and hitting people? I mentioned this for like USC when I was talking about them last week. They don't tackle. They just, it's all arms. They try to run you over. Florida Atlantic, they grade 16th in tackling grade for PFF. UTSA, all the way back at 118. So I think FAU is going to be able to hit a few explosives and cover. Last one, best for last, baby. 
give me Northwestern plus 12 against Nebraska. Why is Nebraska laying double digits? Who's Nebraska going to blow out? Total of 42 and a half. Both teams coming off the bye. Um, I mean, Northwest, first of all, Nebraska only runs the ball. They're basically like a service academy at this point. They're 119th in place per minute. They're um, running the ball on more than uh, top 10 rush offense in terms of rate. Northwestern had a national average in terms of rush defense uh, and success rate. So I think Northwestern could hang around here. And again, low total. This clock is going to melt off 12. I have to lose by two scores nearly I all day. Northwestern. Why not? Uh, it's just, yeah. It's a team. Which one do you don't trust? I don't trust either. I mean, when you said the spread was 12, I did a little a sour face because I couldn't believe it. Just trying to That's imagine. Crazy. Just trying to imagine uh, a shootout between these two teams tr- makes my brain go sideways because it doesn't seem possible. So, like <laughs> you mentioned, Jeff Sims, who started the year quarterback, I, I think he's been running the bench the last couple weeks because they cannot trust whoever yeah. they had back there at quarterback because it's completely incompetent. Definitely old school run game defense mentality from Matt Rule. Um, and they've snatched a win or two. So I do think, yeah, they win here cover. Yeah. Like you, I think that's a little, a little too rich for my blood. 12. Points. Yeah. I think it's maybe um, <clears throat> six or nine, something like that. So I'm expecting field goals here, not touchdowns in this time. I agree. Yeah. Completely agree. So to recap before uh, let Clark get a little, uh, he could plug himself, but uh, Florida state under 49 Clemson under 48 and a half. Missouri, South Carolina, over 59 and a half. UCF, plus 19 and a half. Oklahoma State, plus three and a half. Florida Atlantic, plus three and a half. And Northwestern, plus 12. Last week, five and five. So lose a little bit of juice there. Uh, on the year, we are 33, 29 and one. Plus 0.6 units. At least the early replays are doing well. Better than the uh, overall year to date. But Clark, you're a gracious guest. I appreciate all your time. Really like insightful stuff, especially the schematic stuff we're talking about in some of these games. So I really appreciate it all the time. Please plug anything you want here, any bets you have. I don't even know if you're a betting guy. I just know that you are a college football junkie like me and you know a lot of balls. So I was pumped to have you on, but please. I'm definitely a degenerate, but I'm a late week degenerate. I let the line okay. move a little bit. I like to know a little bit more information uh, before I bet. So I, haven't, I haven't looked at anything yet, but yeah, like the schematic stuff, that's definitely been one of my competitive advantages. So like on the site, SECStatCat.com, you can see broken out by concept, what teams like to run, how effective it is in terms of like success rate, yards per attempt, and maybe if my web coders finally do what I asked, the three-year-old request to get expected points added implemented could happen. So um, you can break that stuff down from a team break level and an individual level. You can see stuff like depth adjusted accuracy. You can filter stuff just to see if someone was throwing slants or just on third down. Any type of type of context you can think of, you can see it at secstatcat.com. And there's also brief one-on-one videos, cheap videos that can maybe download you on what a Yankee concept is or what the difference between power and counter is. Stuff like that. There's a little bit of resources for the casual fan to become a little bit more informed. And, of course, resources for the nitty-gritty gambler to find an edge. Be sure to follow me at SEC underscore StatCat where I uh, update people usually on a weekly basis. The going around statistically what's going on around the, the conference and schematically. And uh, even though we haven't really made it public yet, I also work, like I kind of mentioned earlier, on our top 
300 players on the week are on three impact ratings. So this ties into our NIL evaluations. It also goes with off-field performance, and then I do what they're doing on the field. So um, if you're catching my eye, that's a pretty good sign. But, Reed, it was very nice to connect with you. Very nice to talk ball. Uh, never going to turn an opportunity like that down. Absolutely. Uh, again, Clark Brooks, you can follow him on Twitter at SEC underscore StatCat. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Wallach. We'll be back Thursday. Injury updates, line movement, best bets. Of course, an underdog money line round robin. Let's see if we can finally make some magic happen. Clark, thanks again for coming on, brother. Talk to you soon. Have a good one.